live from the internet, it's the Local Host Podcast with Mark Drew and Rob Dudley. Hello from the internet. Welcome to the Local Host Podcast. In this episode, we shall be discussing what makes a good developer and how we can improve ourselves as developers. I am Mark Drew and joining me on this self-improvement quest is Rob Dudley. Welcome, Rob. Hello, Mark. How are you doing? I'm doing good. It's uh, nearly Easter, you know, looking for some time off now. I think there's been too many things going on, too many developments, and it's time to take a break and recuperate, which probably is one of the one thing about being a good developer. You know, you also have to put tools down sometimes. One of many things, yeah. Actually, to paraphrase, uh, summer is coming. Um, and it's possibly, it's, I think it's right that we take this opportunity to look at self-improvement. How can, how can we improve ourselves? Right. I think uh, there's obvious ways of you know, self-improvement, which is doing the thing again and then taking a, a meta view on what you did. So one thing that I do ask a lot of developers to do when, when we're working is to estimate things. But that's only part of the picture. You know, so when you estimate something, you go, well, I don't know. I've never built it before. Or so you find it very hard to estimate. But then what I try to get them to do is measure the time that you actually did against something and revisit the estimates. So you can have a before and after. And as you keep on doing that cycle, you start getting a little bit better. That's my number one tip for making yourself a better developer. It's a good tip. I mean, fundamentally... It'll come down to money at the end of the day. Money comes down to time. You need to be able to track the time. And this is where you've got tools. I mean, I think we spoke about... Uh, did, we, when, did we speak about Pomodoro? We've probably We've mentioned, definitely it, mentioned yeah, it before. Um, but yeah, this is where stuff like you know Pomodoro comes into its own because um, it gives you that enforced log of time. It's one of the nice outputs yeah. of Pomodoro technique. Uh, if you don't know what this is, by the way, just Google it. Um, we're not going to do a whole big thing. Um, but yeah, it gives you that log. It was, this is how long it took me to do the things I was trying to do. And that's absolutely brilliant when it comes to feeding back into improving your estimating process. Right. And I, I think one of the, the things about the Pomodoro technique, without going too deep into it, that gets glamorized is the measurement of time, just the actual measurement of 25 minutes of each Pomodoro. But the bit that's actually important is doing the estimation before the, you know, the, 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 the planning of your tasks and then going back and see how you did against those tasks. So this is what I keep on telling people. Um, we've had a, a, a whole bunch of um, opinions and feedback. Uh, um, we're actually at the moment on the slacks uh, on the, I'm on the CFML slack asking people there. And I said, I asked, what do you think makes a good developer? And one of the answers was, Communication, uh, willingness to try new things, which I think this is just a human trait, right? <laughs> Being a human is uh, that's a, that's a good trait. It is, but at the same time, I mean, the number of... Uh, I mean, fair enough, there, there's a danger here, and I suppose we should throw up a quick caveat, that if in the course of any of these discussions we we maybe rely on a stereotype that you are offended by or feel to be untrue, uh, firstly, we apologise up front, um, but there is this kind of stereotype of the developer as not being massively communicative or, or potentially not being great at, at building new social relationships, and actually it's... 
One of the key elements of integrating with a team, working with new clients, working with new new management and, and what have you, all of this comes down to it's it's the soft social skills, right? We've got to be really, really good at being able to hit the ground running and, and communicating clearly not only what we mean, but also understanding what others need from us. Exactly. I mean, one of the, the big problems sometimes is this um, skill, not skill gap, knowledge gap, and knowledge translation that you need to do a lot of the times in development because you've got a business requirement that you're being asked to de- deliver. And yet sometimes you're very quick to jump to a solution that you understand. It's, you know, the old adage of, you know, if, if all you have is a hammer, everything is a nail. Um, or being able to translate those things and trying to investigate how you should be solving that. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's the other side of it is we can often, um, either through a combination of pride, arrogance, laziness, or fear, um, all of which leads <laughs> to the dark side, by the way, um, you know, we can fall back into tried and tested. Um, and the flip side, I suppose, to if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail is if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But we always need to be considering, is there a better way is there a better tool? Is the solution that I'm used to using the right solution for this problem? Is it going to mean that I can do it most effectively, most efficiently? Uh, or am I actually just allowing my own desire for comfort to overcome the needs of the project or the client? Right. One thing I saw recently was this, uh, I'm not picking on anyone in particular, but it's, it's a pattern that I've seen in some developers is of doing quite normalized SQL statements, right? That are very good intrinsic in, in how how SQL works. But then you go, well, this table is going to be reading a lot. And the queries that come out of reading that is just span the whole database, you know, because they need information from left, right, center. And you go like, why don't you render that down? Because, you know, doing a write to multiple places might be okay. But considering the, the quantity of reads that you're going to be doing, you know. Ah, that it, it's Taylor's oldest time, that one. Slavish devotion to um, all of the normal forms. Yeah, uh, I, again, it's... Um, and I see this not so much with normalization because it's normally fairly easy to defend in terms of, well, okay, fair enough, but my extra write takes this many extra milliseconds or this many extra cycles. Your extra reads as a result of having to join in all of this perfectly related data actually mean that the query returns in half an hour. Um, that's not acceptable. We denormalize it. You know, we see the same thing with um, you know architectural patterns um, where... It, there was, I, I, again, not mentioning any names, worked with a guy who was basically um, nicknamed the factory <laughs> fiend. It was the only pattern for everything. Everything was a factory. Um, like, yeah, okay, that's great. We're, we're happy that you've mastered this, but there are other architectural patterns that may be more applicable in certain scenarios. Not to say, by the way, nothing no, wrong with the yeah. factory pattern. Quite like it, but it's, it's not for everything. There isn't just one pattern, like there is one ring to rule them all, right? No. Or if there is, then it's it's such a, a level of abstraction that surely it will lead us all into doom and damnation uh, and it needs to be cast <laughs> into the fires of Mount yeah. Doom from whence it was born. The pattern of Sauron. <laughs> um, Adam Cameron came up with a little one that uh, with a few tips on, on being a good developer, which which were quite, was quite interesting because it was not much of it about uh, technicality or technical sides, but helps others, communicates with others, especially listens to others, takes critique with good grace. Mm, all of us should, should 
practice that a little bit. Uh, office critique with good intentions, rather than saying, that's crap. Not dogmatic about the best way of doing things. Best is a subjective term. Oh, and being able to write good code. <laughs> it's interesting, because one of the things that... Um, came out when we, we put this question out, and I think we've actually had a lot of feedback yeah. from a lot of different people. Um, we hardly had to torture any of them to get it. One of the things that has come up less often when asked the question, what makes you a good software developer, is actually they have to be able to write code. Um, it's almost a given, right, that actually the hard part of our job, unless you're doing something incredibly involved... It isn't actually the coding that's difficult. It's not the syntax. It's not the language that's causing us problems. It's all the rest of the crap that goes with it. Right. No, I mean, but having said that, that that's kind of a, a situation like what makes a good bus driver. Well, one, they have to drive. It's like, well, that's a prerequisite to to being in the in the club. Yeah. You don't you don't get to get behind the wheel of a double decker without the basic ability to drive a double decker. It's kind of Im implicit. Although I suppose you could say that actually. Um, a willingness to to understand that actually, and this goes back to, to learning and extending, but knowing that if you've been doing software development for maybe 12 months or you're halfway through a degree or whatever, that you're probably not a great software developer at this point. That level of acknowledgement, knowing that there is a long way, this is a long road, this is a, a lifetime of continual self-improvement, is useful. Um, but yeah, realistically, we're just going to assume that if you're listening to this, um, if you want to know what would make you a better programmer, then we're going to assume that you are already some form of programmer. I think there's a big difference now, and I, I am noticing this in the in the JavaScript world. Uh, when I say JavaScript, I mean like full stack world. One of the problems is there's so much information out there now. Like when I started doing Java, for example, you just bought you know a Java second edition book and you just mastered that. And there you were. There you go. You're just a Java developer. Now there's a lot of voices out there, and out of all of those voices, there's a lot of projects. So it's being able to not just listen and learn a lot because you never end learning. Do, do you see what I mean? This is knowing knowing every single. As, as we take the Mickey every week about this, about every framework, JavaScript framework. You know, you can feel very frightened that you don't know enough because you don't know the details of Webpack or you don't know the details of yet another framework that launched this week. You know, you have to know that uh, or understand what you don't understand and what, what you don't understand is about and whether you need to understand it fully. Yeah, and a lot of this will come down to, if we're talking about, you know, the stuff that you need to learn to code. I was having this conversation with a guy yesterday, um, literally yesterday, um, and he's someone that I'm uh, mentoring. They're learning how to do web development over the course of six months on the understanding that at the end of that process, they will have a baseline of skill, but they're by no means done. And he was getting himself in, in a bit of a state. He was asking about whether or not, which tool should I use, which language and what have you. And what I said to him is what I'd say to anybody who's kind of looking around the vast amount of frameworks and tools and languages out there. It's not about the tool. It's about knowing how to use it. The patterns that these things share um, are by and large pretty consistent. You know, nobody is really massively reinventing the wheel. There's new frameworks coming out day to day, week to week. A lot of them all do the same stuff or have the same results, the same architectural underpinnings. They might have you know, slightly uh, different dressing uh, in the way that they're presented to the developer. They might work uh, along slightly different paradigms. The end result's still the same, right? Um, you know, if you're working with a web framework, 
it's going to be pretty much requesting data out. There might be a database there, there might not. There are different versions and different flavors, and which one of those you pick is very much up to you. Understanding how that pattern works is much more important than knowing exactly which framework, or worse, attempting to master all the frameworks. Right. I think one of the things about a good developer or any developer should be able to understand the skills in a kind of abstract way. I didn't come from a computer science background, so I didn't I didn't learn the like the the skills first and or the or the patterns first, and then how to implement them. So this is over time I've kind of learned this, but uh, I, I presume a lot of people with computing science degrees are able to now just change the language or kind of change the context, but still understand how how things should be implemented. Um, recently, I took up game development in. Unreal Engine, and now I'm asking all the questions like, where's this data stored? Is this available across the level? Is it available to the object that I'm dealing with in that level? Uh, I know how to do loops. Uh, I know how to set properties of objects and things like that. So all of this has wor worked well in my, you know, um, for, to develop the game because it goes, okay, I understand what events are. What are events in this game engine, right? What events in anything else? It's using the same paradigms that you can still use. So I'm doing one thing that's completely different to another. Yeah, and I mean, I've not used Unreal Engine, um, but at the same time, I would imagine that there are things that you'll be working through and you'll be thinking, hang on a minute, I know exactly what this is. This is you know, a callback from when an event finishes so that you can execute follow-up or what have you. And events, fair enough, in this case, the event may well be triggered by, I don't know what kind of game it is, yeah. so I didn't get that far. Um, but... You know, the events might be slightly different, and events and events and event. Um, it doesn't really matter what the specifics of the implementation are. And sure, there is probably a whole bunch of additional new stuff that come with game dev. You need to start thinking in terms of, you know, if nothing right. else, 3D. You need to start thinking in terms of lighting and what have you. But the core logic of how that works um, is actually, I would imagine you're finding an awful lot of reuse in the stuff right. that you do day to day. And you're then able to garnish that to, to embellish with a bunch of stuff that is very specific to game dev. So, you know, timing, lighting, um, clipping, and all of this kind of stuff that you really need to think about, which frankly doesn't enter into the day to day enterprise software project very much right you don't have to keep an event tick for example you don't have to like know how many frames you're going forwards you don't you know but that's that's not the point the point is that on, on an abstract level i'm able to say okay where are things stored and just find that out where some if you didn't have that kind of concept you'd be well things happen you know you don't know the the scope of knowledge or of, of data big upon this is a concept that i bet you will know and this is something that I've, I've discovered in the industry and usually comes up in conferences, is basically saying, where are all the developers of X technology? And you're going like, well, uh, they're in offices around the world. They are working nine to five. They're led by people. They, they're usually in companies that tolerate in inefficiency because they don't care whether you're interested in the technology. You are here to code. Um, but then you've got the night coders that mainly going to startups or are, you are most likely to be in startups or high traffic, you know, sites that are very interested in in the technology. You know, they try to lead people in a certain direction, whether it's right, whether it's not, doesn't matter, but they have an interest in something. I think it's interesting because you're right, I have come across this, um, and it's actually something, certainly locally, that 
we've struggled with a little bit. I won't go into details. Anybody who's listening from Jersey will know exactly what I mean when we talk about the nine to five crew. Uh, is it just in Jersey? There is going to be like... <laughs> oh, no, no. Jersey has other problems that make it much more impactful um, because actually the nine to five crew are the majority. And because we have a smaller developer number and because there's a very large C between us and anything else, it makes things like user groups and what have you very hard. Um but at the same time, yeah, so this is, I, I've always flipped it as it's that difference between coding for necessity and coding out of passion. Um, it's, it's the people who were there doing it because it's their job. And they are probably actually very good at doing it as part of their job. They're probably very good at dealing with all of those distractions and all the crap that comes when you're working in, a, in an office environment trying to get your code shipped. But at the same time, you know, the, the metaphorical whistle goes at the end of the day um, and they clock off, head home and do other stuff. And then you've got those who immerse themselves in this almost to its entirety. They're, they're coding at 2 a.m. They're, they're the stereotypical uh, geek, right? Another stereotype there, but lit by the, the, the light of their screen as they're working into the wee small hours, hacking away. And you think that level of, of devotion and passion um, is what's needed to lead some of the projects. And, and generally speaking, you see it manifest itself a lot in the open source world. You see it manifest itself a lot in the, the startup world. The one thing I would say is, having said that I recognize this, it's not that black and white, right? There's always a few that are probably actually more outgoing, despite the fact that they, they day code. And there's probably a few who are actually probably slightly less slavish. I would count myself amongst them. I can't remember the last time I pulled an all-nighter working on on um, something for my own kind of benefit or just out of the sheer joy of coding. I tend to get a bit sleepy and, and go to bed. Um, what would be a bad thing about a day coder? I mean, these are what a, a lot of companies would look for, surely. You know, like financial institutions, they want someone to write the code. I think they do, and it depends on the type of organization and what they're allowing the coder to do during their, their employed time. One of the big things that we always get um, is being a developer, we've already said it, um, and this is one of the things that makes a good developer, um, is this idea of continuous improvement, but also this stuff moves so fast that you have to almost dedicate a portion of time to just keeping up. And you could call this CPD, you could call this you know, research and, and development or whatever. Fundamentally, it's just being able to stay ahead of the curve. Now, the downside is a day coder in an organization that doesn't recognize that as a requirement is basically going to start falling behind from the minute they walk through that door the first time. They can have the best. They can have the best comp sci background in the world. They've read Java for Enterprise cover to cover, um, but they will not be keeping up to date. I think that the problem with that is that it, that companies see that as an employee's job to do, right, to keep up to date. So, for example, in other industries, such as law, such as medicine, is your job your, your, as a professional lawyer or doctor, it's your job to keep up with periodicals, keep up with the latest technologies and techniques. It's not part of, you know, your, your law practice or your your medical practice to tell you to do that right but but for some reason we're different as as developers especially when it's when it's that and then from the developer's point of view they're like well why isn't the company training me i've i've heard both of these arguments right so i'm not i'm not sure where i fall on that because i think as a company 
you should be telling your people, go to conferences. We'll pay you for go to conferences to keep up to date uh, if you can't continuously do it. I think it's also there's there's lots of solutions to this, but it's more the acknowledgement that it needs to be a thing. And the difference, I suppose, between doctors, lawyers and what have you. Yeah, they may have to do their CPD on their own time, but their continued employment in that role is dependent on them doing it and documenting it's done. Do they have to document that? You cannot continue to be a doctor if you don't do your CPD hours. Oh, really? I didn't know this. You'll, you'll get struck off. Um yeah, legit thing. Um, again, lawyers will be disbarred. And this is like the extreme, but fundamentally, they all have to track this. The firm's HR department keeps on top of it and what have you. Uh, financial services, employees, the same thing. Um, this is a real metric that's measured. Um, and to be honest, that makes it much more important for the company to ensure this is getting done. And therefore, it may well be that they say, actually, we'll give you a couple of hours a month or we'll send you on this seminar or what have you just to make sure that your value as an employee isn't wasted. Um, The weird thing that we get in coding is, firstly, there's no real requirement. I don't think I've ever worked in a role where CPD has been something that's been measured. Nobody's asking me to you know, submit how much time I've spent reading up on emerging web technology, despite the fact that it's clearly critical to remaining an effective software developer on the web. Um, as a result, because it's, it's almost out of sight, out of mind, the companies don't therefore feel that it is their problem um, because they're not enforcing it as a requirement. It... It's tricky. Um, And to be honest, this could be a a massively polarizing conversation that will kick off a huge debate on the internet that will immediately follow the release of this episode. Um, In which case, yeah, I I welcome it, to be honest. Let's let's have the debate. Where where do you come down on this, dear listener? Um, Do you think that CPD is something that, you know, professional coders should have to log and, and report to? Do you think that it doesn't matter because you do it automatically? Do you think that it would just take too much time? Um, but I do think the difference is, yeah. What does CPD stand for in your world? Uh, continuous professional development or continued professional development. It's the idea that, yeah, periodicals, you're keeping up to date. But the big thing, as I say, is that it's not recognized as a massive thing in a lot of software development, which is bizarre because the BCS um, and the larger enterprise bodies around IT absolutely do recognize it as a thing. And how come how come web development, uh, which is kind of what this podcast is about, doesn't seem to fit into that, into the IT bodies? It's because we're, we're hipsters. Too cool for school. That's it. Some of the things about a day developer, uh, which has been said is they are mostly led and seldom lead. Might be right, might be wrong. They have trouble coping with complexity. Uh, they cannot visualize a solution. I don't know if this is quite true. A, a lot of day developers, even though they, they have a deep knowledge of the domain that they're in charge of, they might not have a deep knowledge of all yeah. the other tools out there, but they do have a good knowledge of the domain that they're in charge of. They download the development tools at home. And that's, that's a big a big tell, right? Right. If you don't have at home somewhere that you can do what you do at work, that's 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 not a a, um, a life uh, choice for you. That's just a job. Right. So you earn the money. Years ago, I used to run the Core Fusion User Group, which is over in just back of Regent Street, and we'd get a certain amount of turnout. And then I bumped into an ex colleague, and he said, "Oh yeah, I work next door." I said, "Do you like literally two doors down?" What are you doing? I'm running a whole bunch of, uh, yeah, we're running this team for this company. So wait a minute, you guys do Core Fusion, right? Yeah, we've got about 20 developers. 
do you know that the Confucian Music Group is next door, right? And they're like, oh, is it? It's like, yeah, we have a meetup once a month. Okay, I'll tell the guys. Zero of them turned up. I went, ah, you have an office filled with with <laughs> day coders. You know, I don't want to, oh, you know, this is not a personal attack on any of them. You're allowed to do whatever you want to do. You have the freedom. But it, it, just, it just kind of told me like, oh, okay, so... Um, we used to have a name for them in the core fusion community, which was uh, five taggers. So there'd no five core fusion tags, and that's all they'd ever used. They would never, you know, there's there's hundred there's a hundred odd tags and several hundred functions, but they only use those five tags. That was a shortcut. That's brilliant. Um, but yeah, I mean that again because this is meant to be. What can I do to be a better developer? We're just pretty much slagging off people who who do this stuff for a day job at the moment. Um, one of the things that you can do to be a better developer that comes directly out of that is get involved with your local user group. Whatever technology you're in, unless you happen to live on the island of Jersey, and even then, um, there are there are remote... There's there, I mean, the PHP guys have got something called Nomad PHP. This is amazing. It's like a remote meetup um, where everybody who dials in from all over the world, and it's literally designed for people who don't have or can't get to a local user group. Um, pick your technology there will be a group of people meeting to talk about it. And even if there aren't, feel free to go along to a different user group and you'll learn something new. You'll meet some cool people. You can swap war stories. I know it can often seem a little bit self-indulgent. It's like, well, hang on, isn't this just a bunch of devs sitting around talking about how great their stuff is? No, I have never been to a community-run event that has not had intrinsic, lasting value. Right. I went to, and even if it's a... A networking aspect, which I know we, we were saying that people don't like talking and stuff like that. But even from that point of view, I went to the Unreal meetup, Unreal Engine meetup, which is called London is Unreal. Um, and even that was fantastic. Just see what's happening, what people are doing, and then meet up with a few people. And I solved like three bugs that night by just discussing it with a couple of people about, you know, I don't know the technology. So I said, hey, I don't know. Can you help me? And everyone was very, very open about that. Um, so I think the, the amount of value of doing this is, is fantastic. There's even uh, on meetup.com, there's even the online Confusion meetup that does meetings like that as well. So that there is, I bet you for any technology that you're doing, there's going to be an online meetup. So why not, you know, spend a couple of hours once a month to massively improve your life, you know? Show up and get involved. The other thing I would say, and this is something that I have heard before, is I don't want to because I can't contribute or I'm too new or I'm not good enough to really get involved in this. Um, I'm just going to sound the profanity alert, but that's bullshit. Go anyway. Even if you sit at the back and listen and just absorb, um, don't feel like you're sponging because eventually... If, you, if you're doing this kind of thing regularly, you will not be the newest person in the room or you will have something that is directly within your sphere of experience where you say, hang on a minute, I know that one. Um, don't think that this has to be this complete kind of democratic, balanced, give and take. Um, it's not that at all. You know, you can go to user groups and sit quietly, meet some people, just have a chat. The other thing is these things do tend to degenerate into... Um, slightly less technical discussions a lot of the time. And unless you pretty much spend your entire time living under a rock, you know stuff. You can 
um, you know, find shared areas of interest with these people, build relationships, um, whether it's, you know, the technology that you're working in, it's the movies that you enjoy, it's your hobby of, of racing pygmy goats across deserts, whatever it happens to be. Um, and those good hobby relationships, that addition to your network is always, always, always valuable. Well, one of the things I'm going to talk about presenting and stuff like that, if you've never presented, whether at a meetup or a conference or something like that, and you think you have nothing to contribute, sometimes I go, go and do something that you're interested in, but you might not know about it and sign yourself up to present about it. Just sign. And you have a deadline now that you're going to have to stand in front of people and present about it. And you realize how quickly you can learn about something when you're trying to teach it to somebody else. And remember, presentations are like half an hour. And if you don't know, you can say you don't know, more importantly. Um, that came to one one of the things I did a presentation about what makes a good developer. And one of them you told me was talk to the duck. I talk I call it talk to the monkey because I used to have this PG tips monkey that asked people to talk to uh, before they asked me a question and interrupt my flow. But you called it something else. The reason I call it Talk to the Duck is um, I'm pretty sure that this was actually from the, um, I, well, I first came across it from the Pragmatic Programmer book, which is, by the way, an amazing book. If you just want to read something that will tell you how to be a better developer in a whole bunch of ways, read that. Um, link will be in the show notes. Um, again. Um, but yeah, duck debugging is this idea that actually, uh, whether it's a duck or a monkey or a picture of Ma Margaret Thatcher, or it doesn't matter, it can be anything. But it's the idea that rather than um, trying to explain it to another, um, rather than just trying to suffer in silence, if you have a problem explaining it to somebody else, the, the, the process that you go through to frame that explanation in your mind will often help you answer the problem. So this was, um, the, the story goes, semi-apocryphal possibly, um, that there was a head engineer who used to get people coming into his office with problems and they used to say, oh, boss, we've got this massive issue. And he'd tell them to tell it to the duck and get them to talk through the problem with this, this rubber duck in the corner of his office. And most of the time, by explaining it, they would actually realize how to solve their own problem. And this actually happens. So this is not like, oh, this is a, a good thing. This is, has happened to me. And you'll notice that it happens to you when you sometimes go up to somebody and go, so I've been trying to do this form and, oh, wait, I know what was wrong. Uh, and the other person, and you think the other person, the other person is staring at you blankly because they haven't said a word, but you solved their problem. And this is the thing mm -hmm. of many people going, oh, there's something wrong with my computer. When I did this and this and this, oh, wait, I've now realized what's wrong with my computer. And they walk away, you know, thanking you for their help, even though you've barely uttered a word. So if you're a solo developer, it's especially useful because you don't have somebody else to go annoy. Um, and the fact of speaking, you put your mind in a different gear than it has been when you're entrenched in something. So... I sometimes yep. speak stuff out loud. I speak it to the monkey or duck. You can have whatever stuffed animal that you have to look at. I have two dogs here that I can talk to, so um, they don't care much about things. So. No, but they are attentive. They're attentive, yeah. yeah they, they will. I, mean, I think that's the key thing, is you don't want to be talking to me. Don't try this with a cat, because if you're talking to the cat, the cat will just look at you and either wander off or wash its own bum or whatever. That, that's not good positive feedback. You need something that's either inert or attentive. Um, and yeah, this is totally a big thing for those who work solo. 
you need to 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 try this it really does work the other thing that i do find is i get funny looks um talk to your code uh, this is a, a slightly different one but when you're actually trying to puzzle it through, if you don't have a duck or what have you, just ask your code the question, why are you not working? And then you start to explain to the code why it should be working. And inevitably, that will lead you to actually read through and you'll suddenly realise why it isn't working. Try not to swear at it. Well, it depends on the environment you're in, right? But uh, going on to that, you're talking about the pragmatic programmer and there's a, the, there's another book called Code Complete, um, which talks about... Um, making your functions very descriptive. So when you're talking to the code, t- the code should talk back. So yep. it should say what it's doing. And I find good programmers, if you read their code, the code is written to be read, not written to be written. So when you write a function, it might do other calls to functions that say what they're doing in the in that context. And it m- makes a lot more sense. You know, if user is available, can be a function. You know, uh, you know, get user, not just get, you know, not user service get. You know, you can say user service get active user by name, right? Make the function descriptive rather than saying get and you pass in a, a user name and you say type because name or something like that, right? If you, if you make functions descriptive, it makes it a lot more easy to go through. And this is a good practice to get into. I mean, the pragmatic guys talk about this. Uh, Code Complete has whole sections, whole chapters. Uh, the one thing I would say, Code Complete can be quite expensive, um, but it's actually fairly agnostic in terms of kind of modern updates to, to coding or programming. So if you can find an older copy, I think my copy is probably six, seven years old. Um, and a lot of the stuff is still really valid. Um, it's semi-language agnostic, although there are some bits where they talk about like C and pointers and stuff. Don't try and read code complete. <laughs> it's 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 big. It's huge. Um, instead, try and read and digest kind of maybe a chapter or a section at a time uh, and apply that to your day-to-day. And certainly the large sections where they talk about naming variables, naming methods, naming functions, it's this idea that you pursue eloquence in your code, um, that it should be, exactly as you say, almost conversational. Um, I do not agree, um, and this might be slightly uh, controversial, um, with people who say, you, don't, you shouldn't need to comment well-written code. Well-written code is its own comment. Um, I, I think that that's, frankly, a little bit daft. Um, but at the same time, well-written code should need less comment. Right. And and the thing is, the, with, with regards to comments, I like comments that tell me the intention behind the code. I hate comments that tell me the implementation of the code. Like, for example, like, go get the user. And it's like, yeah, no, I can read, you know, user service, get user. I understand that, you know, is just because you've said it without the spacing in, in, in a, you know, not in a pragmatic, in a programmatic way is I get it. But if you say like this gets users are only active on Monday to Wednesdays, ah, oh, right, okay, now I understand what why this weird logic. 
Yeah, so that's context that isn't immediately obvious from the the method name or the variable name. You could probably get it if you read down, but at the same time, if I'm scanning this, if, if it's not my code, if it's something that I've inherited from you or we're working together on something, then, yeah, make my life easy. You know, tell, tell me what this entire chunk of, of class code actually will do. Um, don't make me read the whole thing just because, ooh, it shouldn't need comments. That's a dick move. There's another thing that came up, and Bill Gates said it, that the best quality of a program is being lazy. I think he said that. I couldn't be bothered to look it up, whether it's him or not. We'll just attribute it to him. I mean, he, he's probably not going to correct us, um, and neither will anybody else for fear of getting sued by Bill Gates. Yeah. <laughs> but the problem with that is is one of these appropriations that is like, oh, well, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs didn't go to university, so I shouldn't either. It's like, well, yeah, so there are a million people that are now working at, at, at McDonald's. Um, it's not so much laziness of being a programmer going, no, I can't be bothered, I'm not going to do that. It means that you you would spend a lot more effort <laughs> in doing something that you know that you have to do time and time again rather than doing that thing time and time and time and time again. That is that kind of laziness rather than just generic laziness. Yeah, and I think that actually when you say they're lazy, it's actually good programmers seek efficiency. Efficiency is the friend of a good programmer. So you look for ways to automate. Um, you look for ways to not do the same work. Um, I can understand why perhaps laziness gets used because it, it does have that kind of slightly cooler edge. It's it's flying in the face of the establishment. But yeah, let's face it: being a lazy programmer means you ne never learned never learned to code in the first place, and you just have never started a project. That is not being a good developer. Um, that's being a bum. At the same time, being efficient, lazy slash efficient, is something that we all do, um, and it's something that actually almost earmarks kind of a programmer who's hit the next level. They've leveled up to the point where they'll look at a problem and they'll be, well, I could do this by hand or I could just loop it or I could just spend 10 minutes and write a script that does it for me. Mm -hmm. Or you, you could spend 10 minutes finding a library that, you, that, you, that will do all of that tough work for you and use that. That's also yeah, totally. Part of this is not reinventing the wheel. This is the the fact that most languages, in fact, there are very few I can think of off the top of my head that don't have this kind of package system or a library system or a module system. Why on earth would you bother reinventing, say, something simple like left pad? Is fair enough. You could you could write your own, roll your own fairly quickly, um, and frankly, depending on that, is a bit daft uh, and might break the internet. <clears throat> node. Um, but at the same time, there are problems that very quickly start to snowball. There is a great video out there on YouTube about um, implementing time zone handling in code. I, d I don't know if you've seen it. We'll, we'll definitely pop this one in the show notes because it's hilarious because it's completely true about all the different variants about what you need to do to actually deal with time zones across history and what have you. Um, but yeah, why on earth would you write your own date-time parser? Just use one of the ones that's already been built, that's maintained. This stuff is really hard to get right, and you've kind of got to get it right. Um, the other big example is, who in their right mind writes their own encryption library? Yeah, don't do that. That's, that's a terrible idea. Um, encryption is the hardest of the hard. It's up there with, with quantum science and, and, and brain surgery. Um, yeah, just, just use one of the ones that already exists because even they screw it up, right? 
Um, but at least when they screw it up, you'll know about it because the entire internet will be telling you. <laughs> right. There's another one that uh, maybe we haven't touched on, which is actually a quite important one, is uh, a business perspective. So is having uh, the idea of why you're doing this work, like ultimately why. Is to make the business money? Is it to save lives? Is it to to take over the world? Take over the world, which is a usual thing that we were trying to do um, every day. Um, but yeah, we don't work in a vacuum, right? So the work that we're doing has to has to affects other people. So is being able to understand that if a business is asking you to do something, is being able to push back and say, actually, I think with my skills and or the skills of my team, we can do something better for the business that would be might be not more profitable. But for that, you need to be able to express things in a business perspective, right? Yeah, I'm, the business perspective actually speaks to a whole number of different facets of software development and the development team and the development team's skills. Um, one of my personal favorites is, and we'll, we'll cycle back to a couple of the others in a moment, is this idea that done is better than perfect. I'm sure you've heard that one kicking around, um, that actually as developers we can often be very detail-oriented and we're often very, very keyed up on the idea that we know what this looks like when it's finished. At the same time, the business just wants us to ship the damn product. They just want it out the door so they can start making money off licensing or, or off customers. Right, and and it's better. Is that it fits into it? It's better to apologise than to explain, right? So, you, so you can put something out, and if there's a bug, you fix it because we're lucky that we live in a world that most of the software the, the software goes out, and we can fix as long as there's no massive issue with it, right? Yeah, which is not to say you don't pursue quality. But at the same time, you need to bound your your kind of deliverables. So not only are you working to the the business requirements, as in if they ask you to build a um, an egg box, don't go and build a race car. It doesn't matter how fucking cool it is. It's not what they need right now. Um, but also not building that egg box to within an inch of its life so that it takes two years of design development and tweaking when actually they just needed something to use twice. Is uh, Yeah, understanding the context of, of what your product is going to be used in is also pretty important. I mean, one of the other things that kind of ties into this is, and this is an interesting one because it depends on the type of company you work in and the level that you work at, but actually understanding the viability of what you're trying to build. Um, you know, understanding things like actually is this a thing that will be used a lot or for a long time, in which case it probably warrants more attention? Um, or is it something that is temporary? Um, but also making sure you understand that if it is temporary, it has to be temporary. Um, you can't have the number of times we've seen this gaffer taped together MVPs that are still in production five, yeah. ten years later. Because people, well, once you put it out in production, it's going to be used, right? by someone or something. So I think it's always, we're, we're, I mean, we're asking a lot of our developers at this point. They have to continually update themselves. They have to mix and mingle and network. Um, they have to join online user groups. They have to listen to this podcast religiously. Um, they, they have to read two books, one of which is quite hefty, and start thinking about eloquent naming. And they have to consider the context of their code, not only within the context of the application complexity and reuse, um, but also within the context of the business. And the trouble is, that's it. 
this is exactly what we're kind of getting at is being a, a great software developer, and I can't claim to be one, I know a couple, mm. is all of those things. Right. It's not easy. But but we're complex beings, right? And we don't start out at zero. We start at a good place. I've met some great, great software developers that came straight out of uni. In fact, they weren't even straight out of uni. They were like doing the interim year and they were great. We we hired them like the moment they had finished their degree. And there were, there were people that I don't want to name any names, but I would have fired two other guys just to keep that one guy. And the other guys yeah. were, were, you know, developers. Um, one of the things that I wanted to put in here, which has become a, a little bit of a, a, a thing for me at the moment, is the ability to handle failure. Um, now, I'm not just saying, saying throwing exceptions and things like that, but this is both being able to say, okay, actually, this is wrong. Let's stop this development and let's try a new track. Being able to, to exit early out of a strategy, whether that's both from a coding point of view, what I try to do in my coding is uh, get the exceptions out uh, early before you actually start hitting the database or anything else. And, you know, the input's bad. Quickly get out. Don't bother any of the code. And in my mind, is, is the ability to, you know, if there's anything wrong, just throw it away. Before you start bothering somebody else, just make sure that it's all cleaned up. So my code has, you know, if this is, if you didn't pass me the input, if the input wasn't right, if if the 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 day isn't right, quit really quickly. Um, and for those developers out there, it's not nested ifs, it's ifs by themselves with an exit. You should get into the practice of doing this because I'm t sick and tired of reading your nested damn ifs. Sorry, just needed to get that. Do you, do you feel better now? I feel better now, but the, I I've, I've read a lot of code that, that 14 ifs in, I am, I have, I've lost the context or the will to live. I think... Interestingly, that does actually go into, and we, we're in danger of becoming like the tech platitude show at this point, but um, one of the great ones that I always tell new developers, um, because I am maybe not a nested, I don't have quite as so much of an issue with the occasional nested if, but fundamentally your code needs to look and work reasonably. It needs to be semi-sensible. You hand me a pile of rubbish um, and I will hand it straight back. And one of the big things I always say to them is, write your code as if it is going to be read and critiqued by somebody else. You know, when you're judging it, don't judge it in your own eyes as, oh, well, this kind of does the job, unless that's all that's required. But if it's for work, for a project, what have you, write it as if you are going to hand it over to somebody who's going to go through it with a red pen and pick you up on every single screw-up. Um, because it will improve, and this is attention to detail, it will improve your ability to write better, cleaner code. You have to kind of effectively play devil's advocate, be objective about your own code, irregardless of how tough the problem was that you solved. You know, the number of times I've seen glorious pieces of, of abstraction, and actually the indentation's been wrong. And by that I don't mean tabs or spaces, I don't give a crap. It's been inconsistent or just missing. And you're like going, this is 101. If you can't get that right, this is now really hard for me to read. It's really hard for you to read when you come back to it. Because the thing is, if you pick up that code again in three, six months' time, unless you are an absolute genius, eidetic memory and all, you are now a stranger to yourself six months ago. 
and you will thank yourself for being a little bit more thoughtful in in uh, six months ago than uh, you perhaps might have been, um, because you'll be able to get up and running again much much faster. And was you writing that code, you know, writing that awesome code and lovely indents using tabs? Um, one thing that you should do is like look around the code that you're writing because normally, you, unless you're doing a greenfield project, that this is the first time any ASCII characters have hit that page. But there's a lot of times that you're going back and fixing and you're in something else. Upgrade the code around it. If you see something wrong in the code around it, write a quick test, add tests for that code, and then fix, make it look better. Uh, you know, be a boy scout, so to speak. Is you know, leave your work area better than you found it. So no, don't just add your own thing, try to improve. So the quality of your code slowly improves all the time. And I'm not saying just your own code, but of your code base. Yep. Um, housekeeping as you go through, um, whether it's yours, whether it's somebody else's, and there's balances here, you know, you might be restricted in terms of what you can and can't change. But fundamentally, if you open up a file and actually it's missing some dot blocks or it's using an old indentation style or it's just not quite there or it hasn't got test coverage, fix it. You know, don't leave it for the next guy or girl to come along. Just clean up. You know, make the world a little a little bit happier, a little bit better. Right. Um, and I've gone to, to companies that have huge code debt. And if they've just been doing this as they went along, um, you know, um, unit testing goes a long way for this. And knowing and ha if you go into a project and you notice that there isn't unit testing on it, start. You don't have to cover all the code. Just start with the bits that you're doing, and then as you go along, add a little bit more, right? Just put the framework in there, get it all wired up. That's like a, an hour's job, right, on top of everything else. And you know, don't worry about, as we said last time, you can do CI and all the rest of it. Don't worry about that. It, it's, that's not what it's about. It's about just starting the process of improving. Um, you know, if you've got, and there's, there's little things that you can do, certainly on the front end. It's like if you're not using a package managed dependency, um, why don't you try and, and have a look next time you're in there, get a package manager and just swap the dependency out. You can do it for the same version. It's exactly the same dependency, but now you've got a nice auditable um, control structure for those dependencies. And you don't have to do them all at once. You're not going to spend weeks tearing it all apart. You can just do it bit by bit. And the next person who comes along, we're oh, hang on a minute, we're, we're using NPM or Bower or whatever it is for front end. Um, yeah, I can do that now. You can circulate it amongst your team and just say, look, next time you're in, grab one, replace it, test it, and away you go. Um, one of the interesting things um, that kind of leads into that is this uh, this idea of um, looking up um, is is really important when you're coding. Um, it's really easy because we we um, we get sucked into the problem in front of us, and it's really easy to kind of be head down and we're trying to solve this this issue. We're wrestling you know, algorithms. We've got databases and libraries and what have you. Um, and the number of times I've seen this in Teams and in my own personal experience, and indeed I've done it, is you need to remember what the end goal is. And this isn't just business, but look up and think about what you're doing in the context of the wider system. It doesn't take very long. Um, but often you realize that, hang on a minute, I'm about to spend hours or days doing this thing. 
And it's really not that important in the wider scale of things. I could do it in a slightly different way, and this is your idea. You know, you know if you can't move forward, just turn left. Um, but you also need to have this architectural overview, this idea of how the whole thing hangs together. You know how I used to do this before? Um, many, many years ago, I used to smoke, and those smoke breaks allowed me to step back away from the keyboard and sit outside, and because I literally couldn't be coding because I had to be standing outside in the rain or whatever, uh, my mind would still be thinking about the problem, but then I had to think of it in a kind of abstract way. So it helped me to, to think about it from a distance, right? So now take a walk, don't smoke, but, you know, take a step back. And, you know, th- having that break allows you to to understand. And also quite important is th- this is maybe not an obvious one or, or it's an incredibly obvious one that so much that we're missing. Look after yourself. Don't overwork. Uh, I went to a conference and what I actually got back out of that conference was uh, a lot of developers suffer from RSI and I was starting to suffer from RSI, you know, like, so loads of tips are usually, oh, well, change the mouse, change the the posture, get this gadget that will fix it. But you're going like, no, but the, the intrinsic problem is that you're doing something wrong to your body and the way to get around it is to exercise. So someone that said that they had like, job crushingly bad RSI. She said she started taking up rugby and doing exercise and got over that. So one important to become a good developer is to become a good human. So I know this is really obvious, but I've noticed that that now that I have a regular schedule when I go to sleep and when I wake up and when things happen, I'm able to to develop things a, a, lot, a lot better. And that's my dog agreeing behind me by sitting on the yeah, squeaky it's, toy. It's not to turn this into a, a, the full-on self-help system, um, but it is, it, it's understanding that pretty much everything you do will impact on your ability to do your job. And obvious things, you know, like maybe try swapping some of those coffees for water. Work on your hydration. It's science. This isn't just random advice. Your brain works better hydrated and... Programming is fundamentally a cerebral or thought-led process. Right, and your brain is a muscle, but which, which, which apart from the, you exercise it and it gets better, blah, 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 but also needs water. It needs nutrition and it needs rest. So, yeah, absolutely. Look after yourself um, and each other. And each other. And on that note, I think that's a perfect ending. Uh, doing the Jerry Springer ending to our show. I think we've covered most of them. Um, obviously, there's other stuff like, for example, curiosity, but they they kind of fall into to the, what we've already discussed. Is there anything else that we've missed? No, I think um, there are a couple that I'd, I'd pull out um, just just very quickly, and this is a really interesting one. From um, it basically deals with recognizing patterns or algorithms in real world scenarios i.e. breaking a journey into steps. And this is a great training. Um, uh, we, you know, we talk about exercising your brain. This is amazing. You just look at any problem, look at any system, and start to think, how would I do that in code? Um, how would I build the system that maybe improves that really tedious wait at the traffic lights every morning? You know, what kind of sensors, what kind of information flows, and what have you? And you just find yourself slipping into this really quite... Um, hypnotic way of just taking apart day-to-day problems 
Because let's face it, we all love the analysis stage of a project. It's 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 the nice bit, but we could always be better and being able to think outside the box in those areas. So that is a really interesting tip and one that doesn't get said enough, I don't think. Game dev has got a lot of these uh, these loops, these development loops, because you're you're doing things that happen in, well in three D that happen normally that you'd expect them to do. So you have to break down things like how does a door open, you know. You know, it's a very, very simple. How does automated doors open? And you go, well, it's just a detection and you move. And you go, yeah, but where, how, how far should it detect you? And that then turns into like, well, how fast am I going between here and the door so that when it detects me, it has time to open the door? I quite like the idea that actually having calculated all of that, you still get it wrong. So if they're going at the door full tilt, and this is this is truly realistic gaming, you just straight into it. And the other one, uh, the other thing, and this is my last one to finish off, is knowing where to go to find out answers to things you don't know. Okay, that's an interesting one. You know, knowing exactly, not exactly how, but knowing how to research, knowing how to ask questions, not just on Stack Overflow and of others, but how do I research if that question's already been answered? How can I use the tools I've got? How do I recognize what makes a good answer versus a bad answer, given that I didn't know the answer anyway? Um, and these are these are skills that, again, you just pick up through experience. But spending a bit of time researching, for example, Google's advanced search, it has one, by the way, and it's amazing if you need to find or dr- drill down a specific problem. Knowing how to find out exactly which log trace is are likely to return search results. Knowing where your log files are right. is quite useful. And all of this stuff, so kind of joining it together. So there's a couple of things there that, you, that you've raised. One is knowing how to ask a question, whether it's in a forum or just on, on you know, whether it's on Stack Overflow, where you're finding the question or actually being able to post that question. I notice this in a, in a lot of user groups. People don't know how to ask questions. Like, I have problem. And you're like, okay. You have not given me enough information to be able to possibly answer you. Uh, go off, learn how to ask a question, and then come back. And sometimes uh, I'm quite harsh in that, in, in, in my replies to those people, but I've found myself at the same, in the same position because, again, I've started game development. There, there are, I sometimes don't know how to ask the question to get the result that I want, right? Mm-hmm. And how you do that is by you can talk to people because stop typing stuff. Try to go chat to people like using your voice and things like that, either in meetups or um, I've said to people, hey, can we have a chat online and, and like actually literally have a conversation? I'm trying to solve something that you will go, oh, actually, that's done with hitboxes. What you're trying to do is done like this. Right, because you don't know, don't have the the capability to ask the right question, uh, and it's knowing that you don't know how to do that. So therefore, you're you have to change the way that you you're asking. Yeah, um, and I think that also certainly um, there's a another thing which is whilst we may all be in this together and we kind of are, kind of aren't. Just bear in mind that nobody owes you a solution to your shit. You, know, you always go into these conversations, you're gracious, you're humble, and you know nobody has to help you unless you've got paid tech support, at which point be as rude as you want, I don't care. <laughs> um, but you know if you're asking the community, you know 
you're asking them to provide you with a solution to a problem that is fundamentally your problem. Right. So, yeah, be nice about it. Uh, and I've seen that too many times. Honestly, there's too many times that people are not. I'll, I'll post in the show notes, there's a great article on how to ask a, a question on Usenet. Um, it's a long article that I think keeps on getting branded. So I have that link stored somewhere that I'll post in the show notes. I think so. There's actually one more thing. Grace under fire. In other words, you're a good developer, you've estimated well, you have read up, you've done all this stuff. But when the fit hits the shan, how do you cope with that, with with those problems? It's also a really defining factor. I think this is for everyone. I, you know, courage under fire is very important. You know, when that server's burning, being able to maintain your cool and put out the fire, being able to meet those deadlines, you know, that 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 have been dumped on you and being able to say yes or no, this will not happen. Being able to be un- honest about what you think will happen or not. Not just saying, yeah, I think we can fix it when behind you, you know, everything's fine and behind you, everything's on As fire. As the world burns. Yeah. And I think it's also, don't give in to your inner drama queen um, is, is part of it. You need to be cool as a cucumber it's really easy to get all excitable and what have you when the alerts are blaring and the red lights are flashing and and your, your escalation process is actually being tested for the first time you 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 need to basically just take it steady there was actually a really interesting point that a good friend of mine locally um who worked in one of the most potentially stressful and genuine life or death jobs uh in engineering in the world I'm not going to mention what it is because it would be really easy to identify him. But yeah, he basically said that they had one rule, which was no matter what was going wrong, there was always time to make a cup of tea. And I really like that. It's the, you know, there is nothing that is so urgent. And and this was genuine potential high stress stuff. He would say they would always say, right, put the kettle on, make a brew. They'd be starting to talk and analyze and solve the problem immediately. But it's just this in, idea. In the kitchen, right? You, 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 and you'd be doing it in a different, different situation mm-hmm. as well. The American public or listeners will not understand that at all, will they? What could they do? There's always time. Okay, for the West Coast, there's always time to squeeze some fresh orange juice. Yeah, for the East Coast, it's time to scream really loudly and throw bagels at people. <laughs> uh, yes, th- that's our stereotype. I'm I'm really glad that that you you had the caveat at the beginning of the show <laughs> that we're going to insult people from New York. Um, if there's anything we've missed, if there's anything that you listening in genuinely believe, well, they completely forgot this thing. Um, let us know. Um, we can do a, a little bit of a redux, I think. We, we can probably afford to build that in. Um, if you have a completely different outlook or a really cool story to tell or what have you, again, let us know. Um, and potentially we might even be able to get you on the line and, and talk to you about it. Um, and if you completely and totally disagree with us in everything that we've said, uh, well, tough, frankly, because I'm going to stand by however many years of experience that we have between us. A lot of this is is good stuff, right? It's not all wrong. Um, you can disagree, but the odds are good you're likely trolling. Um, so how can they reach us, Rob? Is this a leading question? Well, they can reach us via Carrier Pigeon. Um, okay. The and... pneumatic tube system, I believe, is back in operation. No, no, no. Okay. Um, hey, hey, we're hipsters, so we need we're, the pneumatics is a new way to I do it. I would love a pneumatic tube. 
Just that'd be awesome, yeah. dude. If I could, if I could send you messages, uh, thump. In fact, could we not just hack it like it's a Raspberry Pi, a thermal printer, and it just puts it in a tube and then just drops down in the side of the room? It's actually <laughs> just linked to Twitter's API or something or email. Right. Anyway, so how can you get to, in touch with us? You can uh, tweet us at localhostfm um, or direct message if you're shy. You can email to hello at localhost.fm. Uh, you can do site at localhost.fm. Okay. Um, oh no, but beg your pardon. Show, show at localhost.fm. You can try all of them. They might reach us. Show at localhost.fm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we've got like a catch all there. Um, uh, or you can leave comments on the various online spaces. So YouTube, SoundCloud, uh, um, what have you. Or frankly, if you want to, you can just sit there, cross your legs, assume a, a meditative state of absolute calm, and try and project your astral form into our respective presences, um, which we probably won't get. But it'd be, it'd be cool. You'd be very chilled out. Afterwards. And on that note, and on that astral note, I bid you farewell from here in uh, sunny Greenwich. And I will say goodbye from here in even sunnier Jersey. <laughs> Good night. Thank you.